2: Hello, and welcome to New Books in Philosophy, a podcast channel with the New Books Network. I'm Carrie Figdor, Professor of Philosophy at the University of Iowa, and I'm co host of the channel along with Robert Talese, Alexis McLeod, and Sarah Tyson. Together, we bring you conversations with philosophers about their new books in a wide range of areas of contemporary philosophical inquiry. Today's interview is with David Livingston Smith, who is Professor of Philosophy at the University of New England. His new book, On inhumanity, dehumanization, and how to resist it is just out from Oxford University Press. The phenomenon of dehumanization is associated with such atrocities as the 1994 genocide in Rwanda and the Holocaust in World War II. In these and other cases, people are described in ways that imply that they are less than fully human, often as a prelude to committing extreme forms of violence against them. In his new book, Livingston Smith analyzes what dehumanization is, why we are prone to dehumanizing, and how we might resist dehumanizing others. On his view, dehumanizing others is a cultural technology which functions to disinhibit us from extreme aggression. It stems from our psychological tendencies to essentialist thinking and to hierarchical thinking, and is often sparked by authority figures who rely on these features to characterize other groups as monstrous and dangerous. Livingston Smith builds on and revises his previous work on this subject and presents it in a form that is both rigorous and accessible to a wide audience. It's a fascinating interview, and I hope you enjoy it. Let's turn to the interview. Hello, David Livingston Smith. Welcome to New Books in Philosophy.
1: Hi, Carrie. I'm happy to be here.
2: Um, I'm really excited to talk about your, your new book on inhumanity, dehumanization and how to resist it. Um, which, you know, I find to be a, a very compelling and accessible read right on a topic you've been working on for a number of years. I mean, this is, uh, this is not your first book on the topic, but it's the, I believe the first one that's sort of more aimed at a, uh, a more general audience. Um, but it doesn't. It doesn't, you know, sort of lose the rigor that you, that you have from previous work. So I think it'll have wide, um, uh, attraction to people both in the profession and people outside of it.
1: That's the tightrope I'm trying to walk.
2: Right. Um, so to start us off, tell us a bit about yourself. I mean, you, you start the book, of course, with a bit of personal history, um, uh, but you know it's also always a good idea just to say you know you know who you are and your background in philosophy and uh your interest in the the topic and and the writing of this book
1: okay well um as my grandmother would say to make a long story bearable <laughs> uh, i got in, i got into philosophy by accident uh I had a previous career as a psychotherapist and a trainer of psychotherapists and counselors when I was living in the United Kingdom, and uh, I did not have a PhD, and, uh, which wasn't that big a deal in the UK, but American academics would come over and say, where did you get your PhD? And it was a little bit embarrassing, so I thought, you know, I like this academia stuff, I need to go get a PhD. And initially, I went to University College London, where they have a psychoanalysis program. I was like a Freud person. And uh, the director said, look, I mean, we'd be happy to have you, but you're going to have to do some really boring research here. And I just don't think that's you. And he was right. But he said, I have a friend down the road at King's College London in philosophy who's really interested in Freud and maybe you should go chat to him. Now I knew of him because he had he had uh, tutored me a little bit on my uh, master's degree. And I went to see him and he made the case for the University of London to accept me as a PhD student in philosophy despite the fact that I had not done any philosophy in my life. And to this day, I've never been a student in a philosophy class because the way it worked in the u k is you just meet with your academic supervisor every every week or two, and they sort of train you up rather than taking classes. So that's the philosophy bit um, uh, and I kind of grew into the the name, so to speak, as I transitioned out of my previous profession and into my current one. with respect to dehumanization, well, there is the stuff. In the introduction to the book, which I can briefly summarize, and then I'll I'll tell you a little bit more, which is not in there. Uh, I grew up in the Deep South in Florida in the 1950s and 60s, um, and uh, my family—that is, my mother and my father and me—when I moved down there when I was about three years old from New York City. My mother is Jewish, and. In that day, uh, Florida, I mean, it was the Jim Crow era, right? It was the tail end of the Jim Crow era. So everything was segregated. Brutal racial oppression was all around in the most raw form. and You didn't have to make inferences about its presence. It was there for all to see. And uh, I was perplexed, as I'm sure many children are initially, but especially a child who did not grow up in that environment, hadn't drunk that Kool-Aid. Somewhat later in my childhood, my grandparents moved down from New York City. They were very influential. My grandmother in particular, she was a a brilliant, self-educated woman. She had to leave school to work in a sweatshop at the age of 14. She was born in Romania. My grandfather was born in Belarus. So they were, in effect, refugees. But. She, she knew all about the history of uh, the genocide of Native Americans. She knew all about the brutal oppression of African Americans and, of course, anti-Semitism. And she taught me all those things. She taught me about them, which helped me to make sense of the world I was in. And I kind of carried that forward. Now, in 2007, uh, I had a book out called uh, the most dangerous animal which was about war and when i was researching the penultimate chapter of that book i came across all of this wartime propaganda which represented the enemy as less than human and i thought to myself wow this is really interesting and i must look into this further and i found that outside of social psychology there's virtually no literature on dehumanization So a friend convinced me, he said, David, you you have to write a book on this topic. Uh, Everyone will have to cite you, you see. (laughs) It would be the only (laughs) book, (laughs) which it practically is the only book still. So my book, uh, Less Than Human, then came out in uh, 2011. And uh, between then and now, my views have evolved. They've changed. They've changed. I've uh, recognize two very, very serious problems with the position I presented in 2011. One, which is expressed in the literature, the other, I think, is unique to me. I'm the only one, as far as I know, who have criticized my work <laughs> in that sort of way. And so, less than human is, sorry, on inhumanity is the updating of. My previous position. I understand a lot more now than I did back then when I was first getting into the topic. And as you said, it's written for a very broad audience. I think this is a very important topic. And frankly, uh, I don't write for 12 academics to read, right? I write because I want to change the world. So I want to produce material that's, of, of, that's widely accessible to serious people.
2: Okay. Um, well, that's sort of my, you know, one of the questions that people often get, and it's it's probably less relevant in this case, but it's still worth saying why we should care about dehumanization. I mean, this is mm. not a, it's not a purely academic topic. In fact, it's mainly not an academic topic. Um, mm. Yet it's, it's still worthwhile to kind of consider why this topic should be of broad interest um Mm -hmm.
1: yeah so so the answer to that question is really bound up with a lot of um what's going on when people dehumanize one another and perhaps i should start by specifying what i mean by dehumanization and then go on to articulate why it's important perfect yeah so you know if if you the term dehumanization is used in lots of different ways to name lots of different things even amongst academics there may be eight or 10 logically independent uh, definitions of what dehumanization is so it's very very easy for people to talk past each other and that's really an obstacle to theorizing the the phenomenon and if you go out you know, outside of academia or outside of the academia that's particularly focused on studying such matters, we find the term is used even more loosely and broadly. So what I mean by dehumanization is the attitude of conceiving of others as less than human, or put it differently, as subhuman creatures. And by others, I primarily mean other members of our species. Technically, you can dehumanize. It sounds like a contradiction, but it isn't when you unpack it. Technically, you can dehumanize non-human animals. But uh, we won't go there right now. Um, so why is that important? Well, it's, it's important because that attitude, that kind of belief is associated with horrible forms of violence. It's, it's associated with exterminationist violence in the extreme, you know, genocide, but also various forms of, of oppression, enslavement, just some of the worst things that people do to one another. And uh, it facilitates those, those things. So we should care about dehumanization if we care about mass violence and atrocity it's not a matter of mind games it's a matter of understanding why what allows people to do some of the things they do to one another
2: okay um so i can see i mean one of the interesting things that um well there's a a million of them but let me let me just start here um you just mentioned that uh, one can dehumanize uh Creatures that are not human. Mm-hmm. Uh, and maybe you could go into that a bit because it, I, th- I think, I mean, one of the central aspects of the psychological attitude um, is this idea that uh, we are thinking of other humans in terms of an essence that, mm-hmm. is, that is not the human essence in some mm-hmm. way. Right, mm-hmm. so maybe you could, and I and I suspect that that's somehow bound up with uh, this sense of dehumanization as something that you can have an attitude towards something, whether it is, you uh, know, Homo sapiens or not Homo
1: sapiens. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes. So, so the real issue there is how the the word human works, or how the concept of the human works. So you know, if you ask, an educated reasonably educated person well what what is a human what, what you know what what makes an individual a human being a member of humankind they'll say oh yeah we know what that is that's not that's not a mystery that to be human is to be a member of the species homo sapiens so science has told us what it is to be a human But in fact, that's wrong, because if you look at the actual paleoanthropological literature, I mean, you can Google, there are a million and one articles with titles like uh, what it is to be human. Mm. Uh, It's really all over the map. So a lot of people say, and in the sciences, of course, everyone agrees that all, uh, all homo sapiens are human. But the reverse doesn't necessarily hold. So, some say any member of the genus Homo is human. There are others who restrict human to our subspecies. There are others who include earlier ancestors in, in our lineage. Uh, so, even in the sciences, there's, there's a lot of um, uncertainty about the use of this term. Now, the reason for that is that human isn't a biological taxonomic term. It's a folk category. It's a folk term. Uh, And it's a folk term that that has a certain function, and that function is identification. Uh, So when we say, when we classify a being as human, in my view, what's at bottom going on is we're saying, The this person, this individual is a member of my kind. This is one of us. Now, us can be narrow or it can be broad. You know, if you're a white supremacist of an extreme sort, you might think, well, only white people are us. That relegates everyone else, every other member of our species to not us. That is non-human. Okay, and so that's why... Technically, you can dehumanize non-human animals, even though it sounds like a contradiction. So, uh, my dog is human. She's a member of the family. In fact, we refer to her as a certain person, right? I we include her in our kind in a very basic sense. Um. So, so our attitudes towards uh. What are generally called non-human animals may include them or exclude them. So you know, again, we one way we can, one way we could put that is we can dehumanize, that is exclude from identification other uh, other kinds of animals.
2: Okay. Um, so what what would distinguish dehumanization um, in particular from other uh you know, common forms of prejudice that that also lead to pretty you know all kinds of mistreatment uh you mm-hmm. know to the to the to even to the degree that we often associate with um with uh with dehumanization yeah. um yeah
1: yeah okay so there are lots of related phenomena i mean we can Think of dehumanization, racism, sexism, ableism, transphobia, and so on. Uh, I try to be careful not to lump them all together because I think many of these have rather different dynamics. And if, if we want to deal with these practically, I mean, this is the ultimate goal, right? Where it's, not, uh, it's not like these are museum pieces that we want to look at. We, we want to put a stop. <laughs> to these terrible things. To do that, we have to understand how they work. And to understand how they work, it's important to make the right sorts of distinctions. So of all of those things, dehumanization is most closely connected with racism. It's intimately associated with race. Now, to explain why that is, and how that sort of carves dehumanization off from some of these other nasty attitudes. I need to go a little bit into how dehumanization works. So I see dehumanization as a psychological response to political forces. It's not something that emerges spontaneously within the human mind. And in fact, this is one of the defects, in my opinion, of a lot of the psychological literature on dehumanization. And almost all of the literature on dehumanization is in social psychology, right? There's maybe an eensy-weensy bit in in philosophy other than my work, and an eensy-weensy bit in political science. And then like 99.9% of it is in psychology. And the psychological literature, Tends to be rather internalistic about dehumanization. It it doesn't, it it attends to what's in people's heads, but not what people's heads are in, uh, eliciting these sorts of attitudes. Now, dehumanization, then, put in that way, it's a response to political forces, it comes from the outside. It comes from propaganda and ideology. Uh, stuff either that um, is broadcast by politicians or religious leaders or, or uh, you know, uh, talk show hosts who want to get us to do terrible things to others, or it's embedded in our communities ideologically, like in the Deep South where I grew up, where it, the dehumanization of black people was, was in the air that you breathed. It, it was all pervasive. It was the received wisdom, as it were. Um, so these, these sorts of forces have their influence because they exploit a couple of vulnerabilities in human psychology. One is essentialistic thinking. And by that, you know, in philosophy, the term essence has this long history. When I'm talking about essentialism, I mean something called psychological essentialism, which is a it's basically the idea of psychological essentialism, which was coined by two psychologists in um, 1989 in a paper by that name. Is the idea that human beings are disposed to carve the world of living things up into natural kinds, and I'm going to use some philosophical jargon here, as this is a philosophy books show, uh, oh. and and individuate those kinds, by attributing essences to their members. So everything that's a porcupine has the porcupine essence. Porcupine essence is necessary and sufficient for belonging to the kind porcupine. Now this essence is imagined to be somehow inside the individual, in its blood or in its genes or whatever placeholder you wanna give for this idea which is scientifically nonsensical um, (laughs) and is supposed to be causally responsible for the uh, observable attributes that are typical of the kind. So, you know, the porcupine is grayish brown. It's got sharp quills. It has four legs and so on. Those observable characteristics are sort of symptomatic of the possession of the essence there. We make inferences about the kind membership of the individual by looking at these observable characteristics. But that's defeasible, right? Because the observable characteristics on this way of thinking aren't what make an individual member of a kind. They're indications, they're symptoms. And of course, they can come apart from the essence. So you could have porcupines that are albinos or are born without quills or lost two of their legs or whatever, and they're still porcupines. So this way, of, the idea is this way of thinking comes really, really naturally to human beings. It interacts with another psychological disposition, which is grossly understudied. There's virtually no psychological literature about this at all, as far as I can see, which is the tendency to think hierarchically. It's the idea then that the natural world is organized as a hierarchy of perfection. There are higher organisms and lower organisms. Uh, In the Middle Ages, actually in late antiquity, this was formalized as the idea of the great chain of beings. So you have the supremely perfect being, God, at the top and inanimate matter at the bottom and every natural kind is assigned a rank in this vast hierarchy. And we human beings modestly placed ourselves just below mm-hmm. the angels uh, and everything less everything then below us was less than human right this is how we get subhuman the idea of subhumanity it implies hierarchy like psychological essentialism this has no scientific credibility whatsoever I mean Darwin should have Put the end to this, but it's something which is very stubbornly entrenched in our moral psychology, and I think there are good reasons for that. So these two, we can call them cognitive biases, powerful cognitive biases, yet exploited by dehumanizing propaganda. And it's very easy then for us under the right circumstances in response to skillful propaganda to begin to to fall into dehumanizing ways of thinking about others. So obviously, just as a side point, understanding how propaganda works is actually a very important part of this project. Now, back in the 18th century, people got really fine-grained with the great chain of being. And they divided the human category up into a mini-hierarchy white Europeans who were doing this modestly placed white people at the top and re- relegated uh either native americans or sub saharan africans or laplanders that was a big deal in racial theory a long time ago to the bottom and of course the bottom kind of borders on the subhuman right you take one step lower and you're with the apes so that's really part of how the idea of race gets born when we racialize others in my view what we do is we think of them as fundamentally that is essentially different from ourselves there's the essentialism coming in and fundamentally less than ourselves they're a different and inferior kind so, so again yeah. as an aside yeah i i think that racism is actually baked into the notion of race it's it's not something separate it's 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 constitutive of the notion of race so well, the look, pattern of yeah go on uh
2: well no, I, this this was one of the questions that i you know because you know one of the famous cases at least That most people, I think, you agree, is um, the dehumanization. So one of the famous recent cases is, of course, the Rwandan genocide, nineteen ninety four. But then, of course, during World War II, the you know the Holocaust and Mm -hmm. the uh, dehumanization of the Jews. So those are you know sort of Mm -hmm. you know paradigm cases, both of you know of genocides, but also of the dehumanization that made those those things possible right Mm -hmm. but i mean as you point out in the book um although it's you're correct i mean the jews were not distinguished as you know sort of merely you might say a a a religious group a different religion Mm -hmm. but that they were actually distinguished you know there's a race of jews they were racialized right yes um so that for me raised a, a, a Uh, An interesting question between the idea that, you know, racism is sort of the most direct conduit to dehumanization, because there's a sense of racism in which, you know, with which, you know, as Americans in particular, we're very familiar. uh, The one you the type you grew up with in Florida, Mm -hmm. um, uh, you know, aimed at, you know, black people. Mm Um, you know, in other words, you know, a skin color based, uh, racism, but of course the Jews, as far as skin color goes, are, are not, you know, their race can't be skin color based. So what I was wondering was, um, how, in what sense of racism is, Racism, uh, you know, sort of the the closest way of you know which can morph into dehumanization, or is, I mean, yeah. there's there's like racism by color, and then there's there seems to yeah. be a more general sense in which racism is pretty much just essentializing some group, and there's no real difference.
1: Yeah, well, it's it's sort of in between those two things. So okay. there are all kinds of of, of essentializations, right? Um, so the what what's going on in race is three things. I didn't mention the third actually. Fundamentally different, they have a racial essence, something in the blood passed down the bloodline. Fundamentally inferior and inferior sort of in a moral sense that is they, whoever they are, have lives that don't matter or don't matter as much as ours do. Mm-hmm. They uh, there there is a uh, they are, have less, lower intrinsic value in the eyes of the racializers. And third, that this is transmitted from parents to offspring by descent. To my mind, those three characteristics are what makes race. And that, if we bear that in mind, it's easier to escape from the contingent local peculiarities of, of the way race works in the United States, right? In the United States, uh, for historical reasons, the idea of race is very closely associated with skin color. In fact, the the two are often used interchangeably. You know, the famous remark by Martin Luther King about the content of character versus the color of skin. But I don't think anyone sees in the United States, or elsewhere for that matter, sees skin color or hair texture or any other phenotypic trait one might choose, <clears throat> let me clear my throat, I'm sorry, <clears> throat> as constitutive of race. All of these things are indicators, like the appearance of the porcupine.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: right? So they they are ways that we make inferences, and I'm not talking about fancy philosophical inferences, I'm talking about, you know, gut-level stuff that we do because we are marinated in the ideology of race. We make inferences about the essence on the basis of those things, but they're defeasible, just like in the case of the porcupine. So the idea of passing would make no sense at all if race was constituted by appearance, right? So, Mm -hmm. um, you know, someone... Might be visually and in all other respects indistinguishable from a white person, and yet in the racial mode of thinking, really be a black person. Right? Well, right. what does that say? Well, they were descended from black people. Well, how does that make them black persons? Because of the backstory, the back idea of the transmission of the racial essence from parents. To offspring, right. race itself is very often, and in, in, you know, I'm almost tempted to say always, but in in the world of in the real world of living things, there's there's never an always. So I'm going to say it's very often, virtually always. Uh, the precursor of dehumanization is racialization. Mm-hmm. So dehumanization is like taking it a step further. They're not just lesser humans they are less than human and that licenses even worse treatment of them
0: this episode is brought to you by shopify do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real pos you need shopify for retail from accepting payments to managing inventory shopify pos has everything you need to sell in person Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system.
2: Okay. Um, so you also go through a different theories of dehumanization, right? So once we've uh, sort of fixed on some definition of it, um, mm-hmm. then we give a theory of you know what explains it and what its function mm-hmm. is. And there's a number mm-hmm. of you know, popular ones that you think are mistaken? Um, yeah, and I was wondering what, what what is your preferred theory? What are the mistaken or one of the mistaken ones, and what's your
1: Well, preferred theory? Okay, so yeah, so the the most influential theory of dehumanization, uh, you won't be surprised to hear, comes from social psychology. it's It's just very, very widely accepted, and a fundamental feature of that is that when we dehumanize people, the idea is when we dehumanize people, we think of them as not fully human. And the way that gets cashed out in, in the literature is they, we think of them as not possessing um, the full range of uniquely or typically human traits. Mm-hmm. So on that view... Humanness, the way that the notion of humanness works, is sort of incremental. It's constituted by traits that you can have more or less of. I think that's entirely mistaken. Essentialistic thinking is not incremental. You know, you either have a, an essence or you don't. <laughs> Right. <laughs> right. There's no gray area in between.
2: And there's no, it's, it, it yeah. doesn't, it, it doesn't depend on any k- traits. It's, it's kind of its own.
1: Exactly. aura. Yeah.
2: Is that the idea?
1: Yeah, that's right. It doesn't depend on traits, although traits might depend on it. But mm-hmm. that relationship between the essence and the traits is, is a kind of loose one. Um, and that way of thinking, by the way, just comes very naturally to us, you know, in in the 14th century, wasn't, no, 13th century when Uh, the Catholic Church decided that the host was literally the body of Christ, right? Not metaphorically, literally. When you took communion, you were eating Jesus, and the whole body of Christ is contained in every crumb of the host. Well, that's kind of puzzling if the outward (laughs) characteristics are constitutive of what the thing is. but. Catholics don't have any trouble accepting that idea because the idea is, well, it's the essence of Christ in the host. Um, There are lots of areas where we, yeah, sure, you know, vampires look like human beings, but we know that they're not. When we watch a horror film, that doesn't trouble us because of our psychological dispositions to to think in that way.
2: Okay. Yeah. So anyway, so you're saying about the, so what is your preferred... Oh, yeah. Uh, there, so, there, yeah,
1: yeah. Right. So, so part of it I've already described. We have these two interacting dispositions, hierarchical thinking and psychological essentialism. And together, these explain or help make it possible to come to grips with one of the big obstacles for accepting the reality of dehumanization. Because some people will say, hey, This just couldn't be right, this dehumanization idea. Are you saying, David, that a convinced Nazi looking at a Jew would think, that's not really a human being. That's something like a rat? Well, how can that be? I mean, the Jew there in this imaginary case speaks German, is bipedal, wears clothes, puts up an umbrella when it rains, does everything that... A human being would do, and is in every important respect indistinguishable from anyone that the Nazi would consider a human being. So, how does that work? And psychological essentialism makes it possible to understand that because it allows that the appearance of a being can belie its essence. How the thing looks, how the entity looks, can depart from what that entity really is. So insofar as we're psychological essentialists, we're open to to that way of thinking. And so we're open to thinking that the Jew or the African American or the Native American, whatever, looks like a human being, sure, but it's sort of a counterfeit, just like a $20 bill might be indistinguishable to us from a from a counterfeit $20 bill. So a Jew or an African American or a Native American or you name any group that's been dehumanized, and God knows there are plenty of them, uh, is seen as sort of like one of those, those counterfeits, and less than human, subhuman. The hierarchy idea gives us subhumanity, not merely non-humanity. Now, there's a very important component in the mix, which you alluded to a moment ago. Dehumanization, in my view, has a function. And the function of that dehumanization is only understandable if we appreciate certain facts about our species. The function of dehumanization, in my view, is to disinhibit extreme forms of violence. Lethal and sublethal, but, you know, heavy-duty violence. So why should we need dehumanization for that, right? Well. well if, if, you, if, if, if you look at our species, which one of the things you see right off, and many, many, many people have remarked on this, is that we are ultra-social. We are highly, 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 highly social mammals. Much more social than any other mammal you can think of. Uh, you know, any of us on our own are not likely to survive very well in the wild. For very long, uh, the secret of our success is our capacity to engage in these large cooperative communities, um, and uh, and it, yeah, and interact with one. Uh, you know, as Hobbes said that you know the war of all against all sucks. Right, <laughs> civilization is not possible in that sort of situation. So as social animal, we are highly social animals. Now, every social animal from the ants on has to have inhibitions against killing members of their communities Um, because, obviously, you you can't maintain a social way of life, much less a hyper-social way of life, if you're ripping each other's throats out so there have to be forces that damp down aggression they don't make it disappear but they damp it down human beings being extremely social have to have very powerful inhibitions and in our case they extend beyond the immediate breeding community they extend to strangers unlike say the case with chimpanzees or meerkats or you know other social animals however We also have these great big brains gifted with counterfactual thinking and imagination and calculation. And we can realize, we can recognize that there are situations where it can be very um, advantageous to our group to do terrible things to others, to enslave them, to steal their stuff, to remove competition for resources to create lebensraum etc 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 but now if you think of that i mean that's motivating but individuals in that position are sort of between a rock and a hard place they've got these gut level inhibitions it's part of their evolutionary heritage and they recognize wow how great it would be to wipe these people out or enslave them dehumanization is i believe one Way, one method, one cultural technology that we have developed over the millennia to selectively disinhibit aggression. It's not the only way. People often get me wrong. They think I say that dehumanization is a necessary feature for, say, genocide. No, it is not a necessary feature. There are other features of, uh, well, other methods that human beings have developed to disinhibit, but it's a very important one, so that's part of the theory as well. It's the function, what it's aimed at, what it's for.
2: Okay, um, well, what uh, you know, kind of following that up, um, you also say, you know, dehumanization in some sense, um you know it's it it isn't a choice at least not in certain circumstances mm-hmm. um that we all kind of have this disposition uh inside mm-hmm. of us um uh which which made me think of you know uh, and then I mean, of course contrasted that people say, yes but there was you know Oscar Schindler and other you know the righteous among nations and mm-hmm. you know of course you know white people in the civil rights movement and mm-hmm. and so on right um people who you know obviously sort of resist uh you know the dehumanizing whichever you know the target Hi. group is um so how do you how do you explain this idea that um you know it's something that is all like kind of within us and yet there are individuals you know in the same contexts mm-hmm. uh which do not dehumanize
1: well not everyone that uh comes into contact with covid-19 gets covid-19 either i mean there are, <laughs> <laughs> there are facts about individual human beings that make them both their their psychology as a consequence of how they developed and uh, their circumstances, which make them more or less likely to fall into uh, dehumanizing ways of thinking, right? more or less uh, immune or resistant, let's say, to the sorts of propaganda that might infect others. Now, when people talk about Schindler and so on, they often imagine themselves as Schindler, but of course, most of us growing up in Germany in the 1930s would have been supporters of the Fuhrer, right? Even though we don't like to think that's the case. Dehumanization isn't a choice. It just, I mean, to believe anything isn't a choice. I'm going to believe there's a, a wombat in, in my study here. I can't do it. I can't will it. Uh, F- the right forces have to be acting on me uh, to get me to believe. And this is very important about dehumanization, right? We look at another person, and this is a function of our hypersociality. We can't help but see human. You look into a human face and human eyes, bang, it's there. But we also place our trust, we epistemically defer to. Supposed experts, people who are supposed to know. So just as the desk in front of me now looks like it is gapless, but I defer to the physicists who tell me, well, actually, David, it's mostly empty space. Your senses are deceiving you. This happens with dehumanization. The others, they seem like human beings, but the Nazi race expert or the... the, the white supremacist pastor or whomever you endow with these this sort of reality-defining authority tells you, no, that's merely apparent. Let me assure you, they're not really human beings. They're vermin or monsters, and they are dangerous. You've got to do something about them. So, you know, dehumanization... Uh... Rests on that sort of influence, which if you, if you're aware of, if you understand a bit about it and if you understand a bit about how you work psychologically and about the history of your people, whoever your people are, then that places you in a somewhat more advantageous to resist that kind of influence
2: so would you would you include this um seems like another psychological trait, um, this sort of obedience to reality defining authority, as you said.
1: yeah, yeah. And the, see, the problem is that's unescapable. you know, most of our knowledge is testimonial. How many things that do you do you think you know or do you actually know that you've actually witnessed? Well, you know, <laughs> not a lot <laughs> compared right. to all the things that you you know. So we are, this is a condition, this is part of the human condition. It's a condition of culture that knowledge is cumulative and handed down in this sort of way. And that creates a vulnerability. It's fine if the ostensible authority merits that sort of confidence. But the problem is that the ostensible authority or the person placed in that essentially political position is using that position to disseminate some toxic political agenda. Um, And most of us are ill-placed to make the distinction, make the call. So look, if we go back to the 19th century in the United States, the leading race experts, so-called, in the United States all very distinguished academics got together and they wrote a book called Types of Mankind. I mean, these were the creme de la creme of of scholarship. It was a book that seriously propounded that black people are a different species from white people. Now, here I am, some poor schmuck, a reader. I'm not situated to challenge that. I, I They must know what they're doing. After all, they're the best. So, so you see, there is, there is this problem about authority and pretensions to authority and our vulnerability to this sort of influence precisely because human life depends on taking on uh, beliefs from, from others who are supposed to know.
2: So what, what, I mean, that's an, that's interesting because nowadays, of course, with the, you know, as you mentioned COVID-19, a lot of the issue is, is precisely resistance to authority. Mm. (laughs) Um, Yeah. So, so my, my original, my question, I mean, that's, that's something that it would be interesting to sort of. Uh, get your view on uh, in the light of what you just said, but what I was going to ask was, you know, what are the sources of, you know, what do you think are the sources uh, of resistance um, as well as Mm. what are the sort of uh, climate, you know, political climates uh, that make Mm. uh, that are that in which, in which people are more vulnerable, let's say to it.
1: Yeah, yeah. So I'll, I'll I'll tackle both of those very quickly. Um, in terms of resistance, there are a number of factors. Part of one one source of, of resistance is self knowledge. You know, knowing what it is about you, what it is about us that makes us vulnerable to certain sorts of toxic influences, and that just helps keep us vigilant helps us notice when we're starting to slide into this sort of uh, dehumanizing or pre-dehumanizing modes of thought. Another is, uh, and so I think that should be part of everyone's education, seriously, I mean formally. Um, Another is, another educational thing is, is history. All nations, or virtually all nations are born in violence. So we should learn our our history, whoever we are, and in an unvarnished way, uh, which doesn't happen in the United States. You know, certain illusions are sustained, which promotes the idea of American exceptionalism. And it's very important to break down because, you know, if we recognize we did it once, we can recognize that we can do it again, right? Maybe we're doing it now. So those are all internal things. Externally, we have political action, we have support for important institutions such as uh, a free press, freedom of speech, uh, checks on on political power, things of this nature. So there's the inward looking side and there's the outward looking side. Now, what was the other bit of the question you asked me? I've lost track of it.
2: That's okay, Um, because it was a um, complicated um, question. Yeah. Um, so, one of the things that you said was that um, uh, you know part oh, of it was the, was the resisting authority. Yeah. Um, and and of course now we're in a in a situation where that resistance doesn't seem to be doing us any good. And in fact, it's you know rather than like oh these eminent mm-hmm. scholars say that you know. Uh, African Americans or Blacks are, you know, are not our different species. Oh, I must believe them. Yeah. Well, you know, fast forward to 2020 and it's like, oh, the scientists say that, you know, you need to do X, Y, Z and yeah. why should I believe them? Right. So we're kind of in a different. Yeah. Yeah.
1: yeah so there, I mean, there's, there's, there's a real epistemic bind here um, that it, we are, we're hostage. We're inevitably hostage to authority, one way or the other, and the, and the trick is to have ways of distinguishing real, let's say, authority from authoritativeness. Um, that's hard, and it's hard when we have things like you know the internet, where it's very easy to find confirmation for any. Idea that one might believe and to to kind of insulate yourself from from other you know contradictory or disconfirming sources of information the 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 other part of the question you asked me had to do with political atmospheres what what mm-hmm. favors this sort of thing and here you no know, there's a chapter in the book about um this one about ideologies there's one about propaganda. My view on propaganda, at least dehumanizing propaganda, I actually take from Freud, Freud's work on religion. So in in his 1927 book, The Future of an Illusion, which, by the way, was written under the shadow of the rise of national socialism. Um, Although it's ostensibly about the psychological sources of religious belief, it applies perfectly well to certain sorts of political beliefs and influences. And basically, what Freud says is, religion is a response to the awareness of human vulnerability, of helplessness. Here we are in this world, helpless ultimately in the face of the forces of nature, which will kill us in the end, and helpless in the face of human injustice and cruelty. So what we do with to, to kind of try and ease that pain, it's sort of an opium of the people idea, is to seek an omnipotent protector, someone who can right all wrongs, deliver us from death, make sure that the bad people are punished and the good people are rewarded, so ultimately all works out okay. Now, one thing that Freud didn't understand, this is typical of things he got wrong, was Freud is very internalistic. And he doesn't say anything about religious ideas being inculcated in people from the outside. If you read him, it just seems like something that mysteriously comes out of the individual human mind, insulated from others. If we look at politics, however we can really get a handle on this. So if we look at the techniques used by authoritarian leaders, and here I'm very in debt to a paper published in 1941 by a psychoanalyst and philosopher named Roger Monicaro, who observed Hitler and Goebbels giving their song and dance in Germany in 1932 and wrote this amazing paper about it. What the authoritarian leader does is precisely rev up these feelings of vulnerability in, in his audience and then offers salvation, offers deliverance. And these feelings of vulnerability are of two sorts. In Monique Carl's analysis, it starts with getting the audience to feel hopeless and depressed. You're the laughing, we're the laughingstock of the world. We've allowed others to take advantage of us. Et cetera, Etc. et, cetera, et cetera. We're suckers. <laughs> then the move is to a paranoid mode, but it's not really you're at fault because these others are out to get us. They're, you know, they're evil. They're destructive. They're eating away at our society from the inside or attacking it from the outside. And this is the point where dehumanize, if there's dehumanization, this is where it comes in. It may not be explicit, it may be that the propagandist talks about swarms or breeding grounds or uses language of this nature. Or might go explicit, might say they're not human. They're, they're beasts, they're animals. Once the audience is terrified, sufficiently terrified, feeling sufficiently helpless, then they're suckers for the magical solution, you know, Make Germany great again. Yes, the Nazis actually did say that. Um, Join us with this. I'm the only one who can deliver salvation to this nation and and so on and so forth. So it's that kind of atmosphere that is most favorable to dehumanization. Uh, And because of that, I, I really think talk that overemphasizes the role of hate in in dehumanization and related phenomenon is is not very useful it's it's it gives us an impoverished moral psychology of things that we need to understand properly it's not just hate it's it's terror it's helplessness it's contempt we need a much richer vocabulary to for understanding these matters
2: okay um uh, so i mean one of you, you know you the the title of the book of course you know part of it is um not just dehumanization but also how to resist it right and one of the things that you um that you say actually in the beginning but you don't return to it later and i thought you might um in the mm. book um was a very pessimistic um sort of mm. um position that um you felt that, um, or at least you wrote, that, you know, are descending into the worst form of barbarism uh, uh, is is very mm-hmm. likely before the century is out. Um, yeah. I think you're, you mentioned climate change or whatever. But, I mean, could you, mm-hmm. you know, what, what what's that pessimism from?
1: Well, you know, f- first of all, the, the dehumanizers often have the best stories like there's nothing like apocalyptic fear to motivate people um so the demonizers always have a certain kind of rhetorical advantage uh-huh. uh it's not it's not inevitable but but you know they're well placed they you know if they scare us badly enough we we are more than ready to to drink the Kool-Aid but i did have um climate change particularly in mind when things get rough when there are refugees and there will be massive refugee issues when climate change really hits hard and i don't think human beings are going to do anything about this frankly we're just going to fiddle around to preserve the economy until it is way beyond too late uh so i mean refugee problems uh Shortages of of of, of vital um, uh, needs, supplies for satisfying vital needs, breakdowns of in- infrastructure. This is just like perfect for really toxic, rampant dehumanization. And it's dehumanization is not something that people are paying any attention to, right? I mean, this book and my previous book on dehumanization are the only two, as far as I'm aware, the only two sin- serious single-author books on this topic in our language. I don't know of any place, any department, any organization, which is specifically focused on understanding dehumanization. Uh, and I, I'm not suffering from the delusion that my little book is going to change the world, even though I wrote it because I want to change the world. <laughs> so. Um, yeah you know, i'm not to to paraphrase cornell west who very kindly blurbed the book i am that's not a paraphrase actually it's verbatim i'm hopeful but not optimistic mm-hmm. if i wasn't hopeful i wouldn't write the book right but, you know i'm not kidding myself
2: <laughs> well on that less than happy note um right. I think we're, we're running out of time. And I, I, I do, you know, want to say that the book as a whole is just a, is a great read. So it's not like it's, it's one, it's not one big downer. I, <laughs> um, <laughs> but, uh, so maybe you can say a word about what's on the horizon for you. What you're, are you working on, on another, you know, another no, book I- on the same topic or whatever? Yeah.
1: I've just finished another book on the same topic and delivered it to the publisher, Harvard University Press. Uh the title that we've agreed so far is Making Monsters.
2: Mm-hmm. The
1: uncanny Making Monsters, The Uncanny Power of Dehumanization, but often publishers change the title when it gets closer. Um this will cover similar territory, but in much greater depth. So just as on In Humanity was written for a very general audience, but without loss of rigor. It's just that I don't use technical jargon, and their text references are kept to an absolute minimum, and there's a you know reading deeper section in the back for people who want to go further. The Harvard University Press book is going to be somewhat more academic, but not boring, right? I, I try not to do boring. <laughs> um and i can't think beyond that right now i've it's been you know a very intensive few years working on these two books and I'll, I'll lay fallow for a little while but there's there's really a lot to do because this topic ramifies out into all sorts of of areas which need clarifying and i'm sure i've got lots of things wrong so i want to discover what i've got wrong and get them right
2: well very good um so, uh, we are out of time at this point, but, um, it's been a really bracing discussion. Um, very interesting. And, um, hopefully more people, I mean, I do know there was a recent volume. I think you, you, uh, contributed something, an edited volume,
1: uh,
2: by oh, no, the, Maria Kronfeldner.
1: The, yeah, that yeah. will be out in December. Uh, the, mm-hmm. uh, Rutledge Handbook of, of Humanization, right,
2: yeah. right. Um, so there, there are scholars. You know, you're you're not alone.
1: <laughs> it's changing. It's changing. People are picking it up now.
2: Yeah, um, but anyway, um, I appreciate your taking the time to talk with us today, and um, I wish you luck as you as you lay fallow and let 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 the ideas kind of wash over you and and develop in their own due time.
1: Fabulous talking with you, Carrie. Thank you so much.
2: Okay, great. Bye-bye. Bye now. You've been listening to my interview with David Livingston Smith, professor of philosophy at the University of New England. We've been talking about his new book, On Inhumanity, Dehumanization and How to Resist It, which is just out from Oxford University Press. I'm Carrie Fichtor. This is New Books in Philosophy, I hope you enjoyed the podcast and thank you once more for listening.